COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Our goal is to protect the lives and livelihoods of Australians. We have breaking news on a corona scare. The panic buying, self-isolating on a statewide level. Stop it. It's Friday, 22nd of May. Welcome to Coronavirus Watch. Good to have your company. It's Natalie Bonjolo and Ben O'Shea with you. And it has been a very important week in WA. Uh, various restrictions have been eased and quite significant health milestones. So, Ben, can you just run us through the numbers of COVID cases locally for the moment? Yeah, a very big week in terms of health milestones. There was just a couple of historical cases that were added to WA's COVID total uh, via blood tests that were ha- happened on people who had previously had the virus and hadn't been detected earlier. They have since recovered, uh, and so they weren't added to the active cases, which means currently there are no people in hospital mm-hmm. with the virus. It's the first time since we've started doing this podcast that we can report that, and there's just three active cases in Western Australia. That's right. I, I really did have a little cheer when when that happened. Um, of course, though, nationally, they are still having outbreaks. Yeah, especially in New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, nationally, we added nearly 100 cases of COVID-19 in the past week, uh, bringing the total for Australia uh, 7,096 confirmed cases. Uh, the deaths also went up this week. We added three to the national death toll, a 60-year-old man and two women, a 93-year-old and an 80-year-old, uh, who were all from New South Wales. Uh, Victoria, we're watching that state very closely uh, going forward because they've had five more cases uh, in the past 24 hours from that meatpacking factory uh, and 12 in total in that state in the past 24 hours. So uh, they're, they're still on top of it, but uh, certainly there's a, a couple of problem spots that they're, they're struggling with. That's right. And so long as those two states continue to see new cases, as we've heard from the Premier, it's very unlikely that WA's hard borders will come down anytime soon. So um, it's really interesting to watch what's happening across the country. Now, internationally, yesterday saw the largest single day increase in COVID positive cases globally. Yeah, you kind of, it's easy to forget that because we're in such a strong position here in Western Australia and uh, to to a great extent in Australia. Um, but there are now 5.1 million uh, COVID cases uh, detected in the world, and that's up 700,000 in a week. Uh, and now we're seeing uh, 332,000 deaths worldwide, which is a, a 30,000 uh, increase in the past week. And to just break down those numbers a little bit more, in the US, they went up 29,000 cases in the past 24 hours. Brazil is up 17,000 cases in one day with 1,000 deaths in a day. Uh, Russia also up 8,000 cases over the last 24 hours. And uh, We're seeing cases in uh, a number of South and Central American countries are doubling every 10 to 12 days. Uh, and so in places like uh, Mexico and Peru and uh, Chile, they're adding thousands of new cases a day. So South America is definitely a hotspot for the virus right now. Yeah, you're so right. It's actually quite hard to fathom these numbers because of the, you know, incredible position that we're in, that at times it's easy to forget what's actually going on around the rest of the world. And, you know, you just have to wonder how on earth they will manage keeping a lid on the pandemic while they're obviously trying desperately to ease restrictions so they can somehow save their economies. I mean, they really are in an impossible situation right now for so many countries. 
Yeah, absolutely. And as as we've seen, the more people that catch this virus, the more people die from this virus. So it's really pretty simple mathematics, I think, at that level. And so when you're talking about such a huge number of cases in these countries, uh, it is it is really uh, quite worrying what the future may hold. Yeah. And as we mentioned earlier, a very big week in WA. Um, not only did Mark McGowan face enormous pressure to abolish the remaining four regional borders, but then left of field this afternoon, <laughs> Queensland mining billionaire Clive Palmer. Well, he revealed he's about to launch legal action in the High Court. So what's happened is he's applied for an exemption from the WA police to fly his private jet into WA because obviously he has, you know, vast business interests here. And of course, this was knocked back. So now his legal team are going to argue WA's hard border closures, basically saying that they're unconstitutional. So let's have a listen to what Premier Mark McGowan had to say in response to that. Uh, look, we'll be resisting what Mr. Palmer is doing. Uh, it, uh, it is contrary to the health advice we have, uh, and uh, what we're doing is in the best interest of us. <laughs> to be honest, I'm, I'm surprised they did knock back Clive. I would have thought that his business interests in Western Australia would have qualified him for an exemption, but it's not not how the WA government saw it. And certainly Mark McGowan is not going to back down to anyone. Uh, New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian uh, had a veiled crack at our Premier this week, uh, saying that uh, states that wouldn't open their borders were hindering the Australian economy. But uh, Mark McGowan wasn't having a bar of that. Uh, he said that he was he said <laughs> he said he wasn't about to take advice from the state that let the Ruby Princess fiasco happen. Uh, and then uh, and then Deputy Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly offered to meet with him and, and talk about how there's no health basis around uh, keeping the interstate border closed. And McGowan said, uh, I don't know who that is. Obviously not the singer. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so he's, he's emboldened. He's emboldened at the moment. He's, he's uh, no doubt by his approval rating, which is just sky high at the moment. And uh, to the point where a person artist has even painted him in Vegemite this week. It got a lot of attention in the media. Uh, a really an incredible portrait and it prompted uh, Nathan from uh, Nova Breakfast to, to also create a uh, portrait of Mark McGowan using the mints from a jester's pie. <laughs> I mean, he really is proving to be quite a colourful premier and, and really I think we're seeing a side of Mark McGowan that maybe many people hadn't seen uh, before. So it's it's really interesting to watch. He's still extremely popular, as you said, and I think the hard borders is part of that. Um, but like many people, he wasn't impressed with the City of Perth cancelling next year's Australia Day fireworks and it was both the Premier and Roger Cook both said that, you know, this decision was actually premature given that the fireworks is eight months away. So that's something that we're looking forward to is what is happening with all these events that are, are down the track. But something that has been quite serious this week and could have devastating consequences has been the trade disputes with China. And really, unfortunately, Unfortunately, WA, we could be the state that really does feel the brunt of this tension between China and the federal government. Well, tr trade with China is absolutely massive for the WA economy. We've got uh, our barley farmers who copped it this week when the uh, Chinese government decided that it could uh, place a tariff of 80% on our barley exports to that country. And it's used for, uh, malted barley is used for the massive, massive Chinese brewery industry over there. Um, but it's not just the barley farmers. Iron ore is obviously a massive uh, commodity that we ship to China. Even the wine industry in Western Australia could be hit if China decides to extend uh, 
and it's not just in terms of tariffs. They can also make things difficult in terms of, um, you know, sort of importing, getting getting products off the docks in China. There can be delays and things like that, uh, which has a huge financial impact. It, and it's all in really in response to uh, Australia's uh, very forthright uh, position on calling for an international independent investigation onto how COVID-19 started. It feels, it, honestly, Nat, it feels like, uh, I don't know if you've seen Star Wars Episode 2, but there's <laughs> Jar Jar but Jar Jar Binks, who's you know one of the all-time most hated characters in Star in the Star Wars universe, he was kind of convinced because he's also a bit of a he's not the smartest uh, uh, person around, and so he was convinced by people to push for you know sort of a vote of no confidence in the intergalactic Senate, and so <laughs> he kind of took he kind of took the the brunt of it on behalf of all of these other planets, and I feel like that's what's happened <laughs> to Australia. We've been front and center of this independent inquiry, and I think every other country sort of stood back, perfectly happy to let Australia take the spotlight on this one. Our ministers have been, you know, doing their absolute best to keep those lines of communication open to the best that they can. Um, The Trade Minister, Simon Birmingham, had some stuff to say on this. Let's have a little listen. This is a real blow for uh, our barley farmers and producers. Uh, It is a significant market to China. uh, And this isn't just bad news for Australian farmers. Uh, It'll be Chinese breweries and Chinese consumers who end up uh, paying more or getting substandard product from other countries in the future uh, as a result of this. Uh, But uh, our farmers have shown great ability uh, to adapt uh, over the years. Uh, No doubt uh, this uh, threat that has hung over the industry for a period of time will have influenced some planting decisions this year. Uh, It also, though, means that we will make extra effort in terms of in the Middle East and in Indonesia and elsewhere to open up new markets for our farmers. Yeah, it's look, it's interesting to hear uh, Simon Birmingham try to put a positive spin on this situation and saying that, uh, you know, that Chinese consumers will also be impacted, which, you know, it's probably true, but I don't think anyone's under any illusions about who the real losers are in this situation. Uh, and certainly if there's a trade war with China, uh, we're not America, we don't have, you know, sort of the vast resources that they do. We're a, a, essentially a minnow in this uh, very, very big international trade pond and uh, we'll be the ones that lose out. So hopefully uh, there can be some reconciliation happening there. I know Simon Birmingham and uh, his team and and lots, not to mention the people at the, at the coalface, the farmers and various other trade organisations are desperately lobbying, lobbying China at the moment to um, to try and make headway here. And so we'll just watch that with interest going forward. That's right. And some more big news nationally today was this revelation that there's been an error in the true cost of the JobKeeper package. Um, I mean, this is extraordinary that this has come to light at this <laughs> stage in the game. So, yeah. so Treasury uh, had said this scheme was going to cost $130 billion. Now, in fact, we find out it's only going to cost $70 billion. And apparently, this is because of a miscalculation about the number of employees who were expected to be eligible. So the ATO estimates around 1,000 businesses have made errors and the errors are along the lines of, for example, uh, a business, instead of reporting that they had one eligible employee, they reported a figure of 1,500. So have a little listen to how the ATO commissioner explained it. We decided to investigate the reason between the differences on a line-by-line basis, the differences between the estimates and the actuals. And what became clear to us is that about 1,000 of the 900,000 employers had misunderstood that question in the enrolment form and had specified larger numbers 
the, the largest mistake being about 550 employers, instead of putting down one employee, put down 1,500 employees, being the amount that they were entitled to in the first fortnight. Once again, this number had nothing to do with the amount that they were ultimately paid. They were paid based on the one employee. At the start of this week, identifying that the, there was a discrepancy between the two numbers, the 6.5 million estimate and the 3 million or so applications we had already finalised and, being pay, and paying out, we decided to investigate and we identified the difference between uh, the two was due almost, almost entirely to misunderstanding of the question of the number of employees and people filling in, for example, 1,500 instead of one. <laughs> you have to wonder about how complicated the application forms for this uh, <laughs> was, that so many people made the same mistake. And, yeah, so they, they got confused between the dollar amount of the payment, which we know is $1,500 a fortnight, and how many employees yeah. uh, that were going to get the payment. Uh, and, yes, yeah, to, to think that, you know, we thought that it was going to be this eye-watering $130 billion program. Now it's more like $70 billion, which is still uh, still a pretty, uh, a pretty uh, huge amount of money but uh, I'm sure from the federal government's point of view, a lot more palatable. Yes. Uh, and so there has, there has been calls to extend the program to make more people eligible because now they've realised that actually it's not going to cost as much as they originally thought. But uh, no, no word on that yet. I think uh, you know, the ATO are just probably double-checking all the numbers uh, just to make sure that uh, what we know now is actually correct. That's right. And you know, can you imagine the absolute outcry and, and shock and horror had that figure been double the amount? as opposed to yeah. half the amount. I of know. <laughs> that would I have know. been absolutely catastrophic for Australia's bottom line for how many generations to come? It's exactly. And it took it actually took uh, attention away from some good news today, which kind of slipped under the radar because uh, today was the first time since the pandemic kind of officially started in Australia that uh, the state uh, premiers uh, haven't got together for national cabinet. They had the week off. They'll meet again next Friday, um, uh, which will mark three weeks since uh, Scott Morrison announced his roadmap for how restrictions in Australia could be eased. And we're not even seeing daily updates from a cheap medical Officer uh, Brennan Murphy anymore. So now you're going to only get those every two or three days. So it's a sign that we're sort of moving back towards some sense of normality. Yeah, mind you, it is interesting because I think, you know, the average person had got quite used to seeing the Prime Minister and, and tuning in and, and watching what he had to say. And so it does feel almost a little bit uh, strange that we're not getting that. But as you said, you know, this is a good news story. And the fact that we don't need to have these regular updates uh, suggests that we're travelling quite well. Um, another thing where we're travelling quite well is the way that the cruise ship disaster is now being managed because the Australian Border Force has announced that the cruise ships will now be banned from entering Australian waters until at least the 17th of September. Now, this ban was going to end in June, but they've extended it. And, and personally, I say thank goodness, and I think most mm. people would. So basically, any cruise ship uh, that can carry more than 100 people will be forbidden from entering Australia. Um, and that's whether it's a, a direct ferry or something that's on a, a round-trip cruise. Nope. Until the 17th of December, you will not be coming here. And 
another moving feast this week, and that's the AFL. So take us through what is going on with football. I can't keep up. Well, something, something it's like cruise ships. Something has been banned uh, in the AFL that I think goes on on cruise ships as well. There will be no bonking in the <laughs> AFL's hub at the Gold Coast. Uh, the Herald Sun reported on Monday that the AFL has very quietly made it clear to clubs and players that if they're irresponsible with their sexual behaviour while in the AFL hub, uh, where essentially they're in quarantine, uh, it could lead to penalties and even playing bans. Uh, they haven't officially documented the bonking ban policy, but uh, but they've certainly given some strong advice about limiting the risk of, risk of catching coronavirus and spreading it to teammates. Uh, and the current guidelines state that uh, they, a, a, pers- a player can see a person who they're in an intimate relationship with. Um, and so this bonking ban takes that a little bit further. And so it's, it's amazing to think that a, a player might mix, miss a couple of games for uh, for engaging in a bit of a dalliance uh, <laughs> in his own private time, but you know that's that's what they signed up for, uh, and it just goes to show that uh, you know it's not it's not all uh, you know sort of sunshine and rainbows for these AFL players. They're essentially you know sort of locked up. They're locked up on a there might be a luxury golf course. They're not allowed to play golf. Can you believe it? Yeah. Um, as well as the bonking. So I don't know what they're going to do to pass <laughs> the time. Pretty much just footy and probably playing Xbox. Virtual uh, chess. And, yeah, exactly, and and for the especially for the poor uh, players from the Eagles and the Dockers who are away from their families, we heard this week on West Live that uh, that probably half of the West Coast Eagles are actually dads, and probably with mm. young kids who they'll be away from for for weeks at a time all of the coaching staff are parents and uh and their choice is to either bring their partners and kids over there but then they might be looking at the 14-day quarantine when they come back into western australia so it's it's a very tricky situation and uh all for the sake of getting some footy happening again yeah that's right and of course you know with football players they will be under enormous scrutiny during that time i imagine Uh, now moving to the u.s there is some furious efforts underway into the creation of a vaccine over there yeah, you just have to go by the name of the uh, the uh, initiative to get that vaccine happening. The uh, U.S. government is calling it Operation Warp Speed, which <laughs> that's it's about as American as it gets. But it's had a bit of a, a win this week. They've secured almost a third of the first one billion doses uh, planned uh, for the British drug makers experimental coronavirus vaccine, which we heard about has been developed at Oxford University, uh, and so now they've secured three hundred million doses for the U.S. And it's cost them, you know, sort of a pretty penny, about 1.8 billion in Australian dollars. Uh, and what it means is it will allow the US to take part in a late stage uh, clinical trial of the vaccine, uh, which will test it on 30,000 people in the United States. Yeah, it's um, incredible. And obviously, this is the one thing that, you know, people around the world are waiting for, because this is when Mm. we would all be able to travel again, is if there is a vaccine. But there is some, you know, really sobering modelling has come out of the US about what the death tally would have looked like if they'd moved faster. So if they'd started social distancing, for instance, just one week earlier, some researchers at Columbia Uni say that they could have prevented 36,000 deaths through Mm. early May, which is just mind-boggling. And they've gone on further to say, had they taken their action just two weeks earlier, so had they imposed these uh, restrictions and social distancing by the 1st of March, 54,000 fewer fewer Americans would have died of coronavirus. So it's just devastating to think that early action could have saved so many lives. And I guess their big problem, as we mentioned earlier, 
is how do they now go about reopening when they're still seeing all of these deaths? Yeah, well, I think, to be honest, I think they've become desensitised to it. Uh, and so they, they've realised that the only option is to just sort of push through and and uh, and uh, just hope for the best. And that's really what the strategy is. The interesting thing is comparing how America approached it to Australia. You know, they had only about 500 uh, coronavirus infections reported nationwide uh, in, in for most of March, where, you know, sport was still happening, political rallies were happening, Mardi Gras and New Orleans happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, in Australia, we had less than 300 cases and uh, much earlier we introduced 14-day quarantines for international visitors, gathering limits, initially 500 people they were limited to. But uh, the decisions that the Australian government made very early on uh, really was effective at flattening the curve and stopping uh, the infection getting out of control, as we've seen in America. And so tell us, how are some of um, the other countries through Europe going? Well, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about Sweden uh, and the idea that they had uh, not introduced some of the strict uh, COVID-19 restrictions, certainly of its Scandinavian neighbours and most of the world, and instead uh, were going towards uh, the concept of herd immunity. Uh, And as a result, they had uh, experienced a huge spike in the number of uh, positive cases of the the virus and had uh, a lot more deaths than their neighbouring countries. And now, it looks like that herd immunity experiment is a total bust. Uh, Sweden uh, revealed this week that only 7.3% of people in Stockholm had developed the antibodies needed to fight the virus uh, as of late April. Uh, and so basically that's a, a similar number to what other countries uh, have have found and certainly well below the 70 to 90% that you needed to create uh, herd immunity in a population. And so uh, when that becomes a real problem is uh, where other countries have got this about the same level of antibodies within their communities they haven't experienced the number of cases and deaths that sweden has uh, this experiment has cost sweden uh, over uh, 3,800 lives uh, so it's been a pretty morbid failure yeah and I, I just can't help but wonder you know who is the person who made that decision that they would take the path of herd immunity and and um, what a catastrophic failure and and it is and how terrible uh, their health you know, ministers and departments must be yeah. feeling about the path that they decided to travel. Um, now, some of the European countries are thinking about opening up to tourists again and Greece is one of them. Yeah, so Europe accounts for 50% of the global tourism market in terms of arrivals. So it's such a big part of the economies of so many of those European countries. And just like America is talking about opening up, and here in Australia we're obviously starting to reopen um, because it's a it's a sort of a financial imperative, European travel is no different. Uh, Greece will be probably the first country to open up to tourists again. Uh, they've managed to keep their death toll really quite low, less than 170 COVID-19 deaths so far. They've been very strict lockdown down, that's going to be relaxed now, and they're going to reopen the country to international tourists uh, from other European countries from June 15. Uh, International flights to Greek destinations will commence from July 1. Um, Meanwhile, in Italy, uh, they're also looking to reopen, and uh, EU travellers will be allowed to enter Italy without having to go into quarantine uh, as of June 3, which they've described as a calculated risk. They they need that tourism money. Um, But meanwhile, countries like France 
France and the UK and Spain and Portugal, they're looking like they will remain off limits to international visitors for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? You know, we have three active cases in Western Australia, but we are are staying locked down tight. Yet in these countries where there are outbreaks, um, they're opening up and and they're getting moving again purely because they have economic uh, disasters laying ahead. Now, speaking of the UK... The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge have taken on some royal duties that anybody who's ever played a game of bingo is going to love. Yeah, that's right. We saw it uh, way back at the start of doing this podcast. Do you remember Matthew McConaughey? Yes. He called, he called, he called uh, bingo numbers, and that was pretty special. But I have to say, Wills and Kate uh, doing the uh, two fat ducks and legs 11 <laughs> at a British nursing home is really pretty special. Let's, ha- let's have a listen. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Catherine's going to pick up the first ball. George would like this one. Five and five snakes alive. One in seven, dancing queen. <laughs> Are we drawing these numbers badly? <laughs> <laughs> two little ducks, 22. <laughs> Six and two, tickety boo. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Hello, Joe. Well done. How are you? We're very well, thanks. How did we do a bingo? Joe, yeah, is it okay? You can see why they are such a popular royal couple. I like them much more than uh, I love Harry, but I have to say Harry and Megan uh, don't really do it for me as a couple. And uh, I would love to see Wills and Kate, um, you know, be a bit more public facing now that, yeah. uh, you know, uh, William's brother is uh, kind of retired from the spotlight uh, and stuff like that. You know, it's just great to see uh, the impact the royals can have, especially in England. That's right, because everybody needs a, a good smile or a good chuckle <laughs> at the moment. Uh, well, that is the latest from us for Friday the 20th. 22nd of May. Join us again, Natalie Bonjolo and Ben O'Shea, next week for your weekly update on Coronavirus Watch. Until then. <laughs>